The Shawshank Redemption is one of the most universally loved movies of all time. Frank Darabont's incredible debut film about hope deserves all of its recognition. Let's break down The Shawshank Redemption. Get busy living or get busy dying. Hey everyone, welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, the ultimate film and TV podcast. And today we are breaking down one of the most beloved films of all time, The Shawshank Redemption. It's the highest rated film on IMDb. It's in the top 10 of Letterboxd. And my God, after watching it again last night for probably the 15th time, probably it really does deserve all of the praise, all of the love from around the world. When I watch this movie, I am just transported to one of the most incredible stories I've ever seen on screen. It's amazing to believe that this was a debut film from Frank Darabont. He next did The uh, Green Mile, which is another incredible prison film. We get two actors who are on top of their game in the 1990s with Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman. And then a beautiful score from Thomas Newman and amazing photography from the GOAT, Roger Deakins. Now, The Shawshank Redemption, we covered a long time ago. We did a prison movies episode. We did The Shawshank Redemption, Shutter Island, and Escape from Alcatraz. Back in like 2020, I want to say. 2021. It's quite yeah, in the spring. Wh- like early 2021. So it was a long time ago. But I mean, this is a movie that deserves a single episode. And it's sensational. And in 2008 was the year it actually overtook The Godfather as the number one spot on IMDb's all-time user rating list with a 9.3 with 2.8 million ratings. And 55% of those ratings are 10s. I can see that because it has something that Godfather doesn't have, and it has the themes of hope, of humanity, of uh, brotherly bonding, of friendship, of camaraderie, and these very positive emotions, which end up becoming so powerful by the end of the film, I think resonate with audiences slightly stronger than the darkness of the Godfather, which is missing all of those elements. So I can see that's probably what makes Shawshank more loved than the Godfather. Yeah, it's like more of like a classic Hollywood, like happy ending. Yes. Versus But not like cheesy though. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. On Rotten Tomatoes, it's a 93%. Can you imagine the 7% of critics that gave this a rotten score? 98% audience score. The Shawshank Redemption was nominated for seven Academy Award nominations when it came out in 1994. With zero wins, it was written and directed by Frank Darabont based on the short story, or actually the novella, by Stephen King, Rita Hayworth, and Shawshank Redemption. Now, novella is a little different. It's a long short story or a short novel, basically. It's a little novel. It's like 120 pages, something like that. It's pretty long. The story tells, well, the film tells the story of a banker, Andy Dufresne, played by Tim Robbins, who is sentenced to life in Shawshank State Penitentiary for the murders of his wife and her lover, despite his claims of innocence. Over the following two decades, he befriends a fellow prisoner, contrabrand smuggler, Ellis Red Redding, played by Morgan Freeman, and becomes instrumental in a money laundering operation led by the prison warden Samuel Norton, played by Bob Gunton. And I adore this movie. Like you said, we've probably seen it like 10 to 15 times. I think everybody has. But when it comes to universal love for a film, I can't think of a movie that's more loved than The Shawshank Redemption. Number one on IMDb for the last 15 years. That yeah. says so much. But 2.8 million ratings. That's absolutely absurd, in my opinion. That's the high, no one's ever going to touch this in terms of films. And thinking back, like throughout the like last 15 years or so, the Shawshank Redemption, I would say, is the most common favorite movie pick when I ask people what their favorite movie is. I feel like yeah, that makes sense. It's yeah. got to be like the number one movie. It's, it might have changed. It changes based on generation, but it clearly 
gained a lot of steam and momentum in the late 90s and early 2000s for to overtake The Godfather. And it lost to Forrest Gump? Is that, that Best what, Picture? Yeah, is that 1994 it, is Best Picture so, for Forrest Gump. Yeah. Okay, so, I mean, that's an incredible Best Picture race. You Pulp get Fiction. This, Pulp Fiction and Forrest Gump and then a few other really great films. It's one of the all-time years in film. We actually just did an episode yeah. on Monday on <laughs> Ironically, yeah. Because when we did that episode, we're like, we should do the Shawshank Redemption. What are we doing oh, with yeah. our time? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so I could see this winning easily Best Picture this year, and it could have won in any other year it came out because it really is that good. Now, sometimes movies can get a little overhyped, but this is a movie where it really does live up to all of the praise because it's just an outstanding piece of work. It's a beautiful screenplay in a stunningly made film. Roger Deakins and Thomas Newman are just this wonderful pairing of cinematographer and composer. Sam Mendes clearly was like, when I make my movies, I'm going to do what Frank Darabont did. <laughs> I'm going to hire those two. There's just something special about Roger Deakins' photography with the Thomas Newman strings. It has like this, now you could call it like a classical vibe. Uh, and, like the kinds of movies that don't really quite get made anymore. These grand dramatic epics beauty and just incredibly dense themes. But when you see these images by Deacons paired up with that music, there's something special about that combination of those two specific artists that I always gives me goosebumps whenever I watch their films. This one, uh, and then The Green Mile, and then a lot of Sam Mendes' films, they were paired up for those ones as well. Movie magic. Movie magic. Now, the rights in production has a bunch of great information. So Darabont purchased the rights from Stephen King's story in 1987, but development, development did not begin until five years later when he wrote the script over an eight-week period. Two weeks after submitting his script to Castle Rock Entertainment, Darabont secured a $25 million budget to produce The Shawshank Redemption, which started pre-production in January 1993. The film is set in Maine. Obviously, it's a Stephen King story, so it's set in Maine. <laughs> no, no horror spirits or anything. Yeah, no, no, no horror, no alcohol. Well, kind of an alcoholic, I guess. Uh, most entirely shot in Mansfield, Ohio, with the Ohio State Reformatory served as the eponymous penitentiary, that massive building. Uh, it's like looks like a castle or like a cathedral, almost like a church. The project attracted many stars for the role of Andy, including Tom Hanks, Tom Cruise, Kevin Costner, Thomas Newman, like Andy said, provided the score. Now, Darabont first collaborated with author Stephen King in 1983 on the short film adaptation The Woman in the Room, buying the rights from him for $1, a dollar deal that King for used that to one. help new directors build a resume by adapting his short stories. After receiving his first screenwriting credit in 1987, A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, Darabont returned to King with $5,000 to purchase the rights to adapt Rita Hayworth in Shawshank Redemption, a 96-page novella from King's 1982 collection, Different Seasons, written to explore genres other than horror stories for which he was commonly known. I believe Stand By Me was in that as well. Although King did not understand how the story largely focused on Red contemplating his fellow prisoner, Andy, the whole book is him narrating the story just like in the movie, Darabont believed it was obvious how to adapt this story into a movie. King never cashed that $5,000 check from Darabont, though. Darabont, though. He later framed it and returned it to Darabont, accompanied by a note which read, in case you'd ever need bail money, love Steve. So $5,000, not $1. I want to watch that short film that he made. Based on that earlier adaptation of a Stephen King work. The Woman in the Room. Yeah, that's, I'd really love to see that. I mean, I'm going to look for it online and see if it's available because I would love to see that. Because the thing with Stephen King was such a big name, this being Darabont's debut, yes, it was a brilliant script, but 
first-time filmmaker, you're not going to get heavyweights like Tom Hanks, Tim Robbins, Morgan Freeman interested in doing the film. If it, it, But Stephen King's name carries a lot of weight, and there are so many adaptations of his work. And so that's definitely why Castle Rock was like, here's a lot of money, Stephen King. This is a big name. We can get some cool talent involved. And then it ended up working out because the thing with Stephen King adaptations, there are some great ones. There are some good ones. And then there are a lot of okay and pretty bad ones. There's so many that's, that have been made. The track record isn't that high of like a batting average for quality. It's a big spectrum it's, for yeah, Stephen King adaptations. Exactly. <laughs> and this is really, without a doubt, one of the best. I think you go uh, the shining than this. And then It Chapter 1, the more recent one, I think was a really fantastic Stephen King adaptation and one of the best for sure. Best in recent memory, absolutely. But clearly Darabont saw something in it that even Stephen King didn't see. And it's just, it makes sense to, you could have made the film based upon Red and Red being the lead. But I think Darabont chose the right uh, move by going, opening with Andy. And Andy is basically... The lead of the film, even though Red is narrating his perspective and and basically informing us throughout the entire course of the film with narration about Andy. But following Andy's story is really what was probably the catalyst for it really working. And ironically, even though Stephen King was a huge name, the studio chose not to associate the film with him really in terms of marketing. They didn't really want his name. That's why he made no money. (laughs) Exactly. So because they didn't want to associate it with the horror writer in a lot of ways. And so this ended up being a box office bust at first. So it came out in 1994 and made $14 million on its initial theatrical run on a $25 million budget. That is not very successful. However, it had a re-release, especially after all the Oscar nominations, and it ended up pulling in $73 million in its total box office run once it got that second release. Many reasons were cited for the failure at the time for the box office, obviously including competition with Pulp Fiction, Forrest Gump, and obviously an unpopularity unpopularity with prison films at the time. I think the 70s and 80s, they were hot, but then yeah. the 90s, they cooled down. We've had some good ones recently as well. And then you're going up against Tom Hanks. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a hard box office win. Also, lack of female characters, and also the title is a little odd. You're not really sure what it is if you're kind of a casual moviegoer, I would say. And But then, obviously, that re-release, it made its money back, and it's probably one of the most rented movies of all time since then. It's got to be... Return on investment for Castle Rock or whoever owns Castle Rock now. <laughs> Probably Disney. <Yeah. laughs> uh, the return on investment must be in the highs for all-time films. Movies like Pulp Fiction, movies like Fight Club, and movies like Shawshank Redemption, If even if they weren't huge, standout, gigantic successes, they found so much revenue in so many audiences through VOD. I mean, not through, through rentals, through DVD sales. Their VHS sales, uh, reruns on television. Yeah. I remember as a kid, this was always on TV. TNT had a huge TNT, deal with I them. remember, yeah. It was always playing on TNT. And so the money, the movie just found its audience over time. And it's one of those films that clearly just took a little time. But there's a reason why it gets, keeps getting watched. There's a reason why it has more ratings than any other movie, even though it came out in the 90s. I mean, the, it's just a, a testament to how incredible the film is. Yeah, and Castle Rock, I just looked it up, is owned by Warner Brothers, Warner Brothers. not Disney. So Warner Brothers they owns them Castle Rock. Yeah. <laughs> so they get all the money from Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> now, Frank Darabont, when he wrote this script, wanted to direct the film, obviously. However, Rob Reiner, 
loved the script so much, the director, obviously, directed Stand By Me, Speak of the Devil. He loved it so much that he offered Darabont $2.5 million for the rights to the screenplay so that he could direct it. Now, he wanted to have Harrison Ford played re play Red, and then he wanted Tom Cruise to play Andy, which would have been interesting. I think that could Cruise, have been good. Tom Cruise was in the running, but he ended up turning down the Shawshank Redemption because I think I read that he didn't want to work with an with a first-time director, sure. with Darabont. Makes so sense. I believe he was almost offered it or basically offered it, but he turned it down. Now, Darabont seriously considered Rob Reiner's offer. I mean, it's $2.5 million in 1994. That's just for inflation, like eight, yeah, yeah, something like that. It's probably 10 mil. I mean, it's, it's a lot of money. Last five years have changed Rob, a lot. Rob Reiner was caking. Exactly. But he decided to turn down because he thought this was a chance for him to be able to do something special, to make a special movie. And I mean, when you think about every director ever, I mean, you can, you can even kind of, put, kind of put Tim Robbins into this. Like, if there's a movie you're going to be remembered forever, so the Shawshank Redemption is a hell of a movie to be remembered for. Obviously, he's made many great movies, but everyone will associate uh, Frank Darabont with the Shawshank Redemption. Kind of similar to Tim Robbins. Most people, casual moviegoers, they associate Tim Robbins basically with the Shawshank Redemption. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Yeah, Tim Robbins, he had a great 90s and a very good 80s, but he, he did slow down in the 2000s, and then I, w I would be hard-pressed to, to find many young people who don't even know who he is by name. Well, I mean, let's see, Mystic River, did he get nominated for Mystic River? He won for Mystic River. Yeah, he won River. Mystic River, so that was, yeah. what, 2002? 2004, I believe. We'll check. Mr. River, Mystic River was 2003, and he won the Oscar. Is that my daughter, Sean? <laughs> But he's not really like a household name anymore for younger generations. Yeah. But in the 90s, he crushed it. I mean, he was working with the Coen brothers. He made this film. He did The Player with Robert Altman, one of the best directors of all time. So he worked with two, a, a few of the greatest directors in American history all, and Frank Darabont with the Shawshank Redemption in the 90s. So he was, even though he wasn't like as big as Tom Hanks, he was still a very big deal. He was, he was a huge actor. And then Morgan Freeman, obviously... Oscar winner, iconic, and he was just, I mean, Harrison Ford would have been great as Red, but Morgan Freeman brought something special to the, to the role, and even though he has such a storied career, this is also the film that I think he'll be most remembered for as well. Even though he's made a lot of great movies, even though he's won an Oscar for another film, even though he's become an extremely famous actor, the Shawshank Redemption will still be his crowning achievement in film. I think he'll be more remembered for voiceover and commercials for credit card <laughs> companies than anything. <laughs> for Discover Card, whatever it well, is. Well, this is the first time he ever narrated a movie or a show or anything before. Ironically, it turned him into like one of the most famous voiceover actors of all time for commercials yeah. going forward. I mean, him and Samuel Jackson, they just locked up every advertisement you can think of. <laughs> and and yeah. even other movie season, they make him narrate too. Yeah, you're right. And he's got an incredible voice. Yeah. That's really what it is and I think Dar Darabont said that Morgan Freeman was always his choice even though the screenplay Red is a white guy an Irish guy that's why they kept that funny joke in there where the first time Andy meets Red he's asking him for obviously a rock hammer while he's playing catch with his friend and then he goes why do they call you Red and he's in Red looks at him he's like 
probably because I'm Irish. It's a really funny joke, and it, it, they stuck it in there. They kept it in there as like kind of a homage to the original character as it was written. But I mean, Morgan Freeman and and Tim Robbins together as the leads in this movie, it's the characters that make this such a special film. It's incredible directing. Obviously, everything we've been talking about, production is sensational. The locations are great, music, Roger Deakins. But it's the characters that really make a lot of movies very special. And I think that's why people adore this movie is because of Andy Dufresne and because of Red. Yeah, Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman is one of the best pairings of all time. And it's one of my favorite duos in film history. And they were actually going up against uh, another famous duo with Jules and Vincent in 1994. (laughs) (laughs) But there's something special, like... The bonding and the friendship, because this is an epic. This takes place over 20 years. It's You see the men age. You see them grow. You see them have in and outs kind of together. Uh, but you see them really become, in a way, brothers and uh, kind of just like they end up, they will end up becoming like life partners at the end of the film. They're going to probably be living in that beach town together for a lot forever until they both pass away. But they found each other in this hellhole in this desolate place. And it's it's an extremely powerful relationship, and I, I really adore it. Whenever I see photos of Shawshank Redemption, it's always the photos of, of Red and Andy that just put a smile on my face of just seeing them, and you, you, and you know how, it's like you know them in a way. It's a bittersweet ending, obviously, to this film. If you've never seen the Shawshank Redemption, I mean, I guess this is spoiler territory. Spoiler warning. Because they both die in prison. Now- <laughs> <laughs> so sad. Just so kidding. tragic. But I mean, that's why it's so bittersweet, the ending, where... We've obviously Andy escapes, and I can't wait to talk about all of this. But then, when Red finally gets out of prison, goes to uh, that town, the hayfields, he finds that oak tree and finds the letter from Andy. Then he goes to find him in Mexico, and he finally makes it. And I love when they are reunited. And what's so great about it is we don't get any dialogue from them. It's just the smiles on their faces. And then we get that great pull out from the helicopter shot of them like talking and, and hugging, and just like you can see. Uh, more uh, red holding Andy's shoulder. He's probably like, you're a crazy madman. I can't believe you broke it out worked. of it. Like, you can just only imagine what they're saying to each yeah. other, this reunion. And like you said, you know they're going to spend the rest of their lives together as best friends, as life partners. This is such a great love story between these two men starting this business together in this little hotel in this little town in Mexico on the Pacific. It's such a beautiful ending to a tragic, horrible, and emotional journey of a film. Agreed. Let's do some uh, superlatives before we get into the film. So who's your MVP of The Shawshank Redemption? MVP is Morgan Freeman. He's, he's carries. I think he's the backbone and the heart of the movie. I get to go with Frank Darabont. Um, just being having the vision and having the will and the brilliance of the directing. is It's really all-time directing. All right, what's your favorite shot? Best shot. Best shot is when Andy cl- crawls through 500 yards of shit... And dumps out into the rain into that little creek, the little river stream. And then, obviously, it's raining. He's finally free, takes his shirt off, and just reaches to the heavens. Lightning everywhere, and it's incredible. So the bird's eye view shot? Yeah, the bird's eye view. That's a great overhead. And then my favorite shot is it's stunning. It's really epic. It's when Andy's bus is arriving in prison. And so what Deacons does is he's on the street, and we're following. This is all one shot. It's a long take. We're, we follow the bus, we pan with the bus as it pulls down the road, and then it pans with the bus, and it, he reveals the prison. And then as the bus drives into, towards the prison, the camera just rises, helicopter shot, and we see, we, go, we fly over the prison, over the yard, 
and we see hundreds of inmates and they're all rushing towards the entrance gate to watch the new Fitch come in. And so Deacon's in the helicopter. They go around the entire prison and then... Yeah, you, they it's finish, like 10 seconds yeah, of yeah. seeing the entire place. And then they, they drop it down again when the bus is pulling into that first gate around the entrance. And then that then it cuts and it's just like... It's a monumental shot. It shows you the, the, the breadth of the space, the scale of it, how many people are there. And also, it's, I think it's important to show all the four walls. And you see that it's like in the middle of nowhere. And that, like that shot, it's early in the film. And it's just a, it's just a, the bus arriving, but still, it's so epic. Yeah, that's a sensational shot. Yeah, Great I love pick. it. All right, best character. <laughs> best character is Andy Dufresne, man. Come on. I get agree. Andy Dufresne's a great character. He's an like, all-timer. Absolutely. In, in, incredible character. His, his positivity, his he has like this remarkable, mysterious quality to him. And Red doesn't even know how to pin him at first, you know? Yeah, he's, Red says that great line when he, obviously we talked about earlier when Andy first approaches Red, it's when he's asking for the rock hammer. And then as Andy's going away, we get some voiceover from Red and he says, I could see why some of the boys took him for snobby. He had a quiet way about him. A walk and a talk that just wasn't normal around here. He strolled like a man in a park without a cure, without a care or a worry in the world, like he had on an invisible coat that would shield him from this place. Yeah, I think it would be fair to say I liked Andy from the start. Oh, he's got goosebumps. He's like mystical. He's like it's almost like he's not human. All right, what's your favorite line? Speaking of lines, since you just read one, <laughs> my favorite line. <laughs> oh, that's a tough choice. I would probably. Tell me yours first, then I'll go. It's gonna be get busy living or get busy dying. It's a great. It's like uh, the theme of the film. You know, it's the it's main hard to, theme. Yeah, it's hard to pick just one line. I would say Red's third parole hearing. The the that's couple, great. A few lines he says at the end where he's basically like, "I don't give a shit." You know, do what you have to do. I don't care. Yeah, he's like. Uh, it means so much, and we'll talk about the three different parole hearings for a minute. A little yeah, bit. Yeah, he's like rehabilitation is a bullshit made up word. It's a, it's a great series of events, the three parole hearings. are just to show It shows the transformation of the character so beautifully. It's incredible. But yeah, I love the get busy living or get busy dying. It's the theme of the film. It's about hope. It's about um, not losing your humanity. It's about continuing moving forward because everyone in this place has lost their hope and their desire to try to live anymore. But, they, but uh, Andy never loses that. Even though it seems like sometimes he does... He's keeping it close to his chest. He's never let go of his hope. And another example of that is how he talks about music after he's put in the hole for a month. And he said it's with him. He's, he's like, that's the, they can't take that away from us. They can't take hope away from us. Uh, and he's still the only one holding on to hope. He almost loses it. You know, yes, Red close. says the first two years are the toughest for him because he's dealing with the sisters. So he's two, two years of his life, the first two years of his life in prison. He starts off, you know, with hope and the knowing he's innocent keeps him hopeful. It's like Sears Black in, in Azkaban. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very similar. Now with Andy obviously being hounded by the sisters regularly, like probably once a month for his life and dealing with that and the horrible situation that he's in, Red says he almost loses his hope. And we have those shots of him like every couple months he's got some fresh bruises. Everyone knows what happened, everyone knows what's going on with him, but there's nothing you can do about it. And then there's that brilliant I mean, then what, what? what is it that happens at the two-year period? That's when he discovers that when he etches his name on the wall. Well, no, we, right? we don't know. So what happens for, like, how he gets freed from the sisters? Well, yeah, he gets freed from the sisters because they beat him up so horribly. Well, no, he gets freed from the sisters because 
there was that chance of the outdoor work yes. on the roof. Sorry, yeah, yeah, that's what and it is. And then the the contest to see the drawing to see who would who would uh, win the chance to work. And then Red having the connections with the guards got his whole crew in. That's what it is. Yeah. And then that's what led to him um, becoming like the accountant for uh, Clancy Brown's character. And then because Clancy Brown's character, you know, this guy Andy helped me out big time when he found out the sisters beat the shit out of Andy so bad they put him in the infirmary. That's when he beat the shit out of him, made him uh, unable to walk anymore, and that basically saved Andy from the sisters. Yes, that's what it was. That's what it was. Because Red says this great line. He's just like this uh, this chance. It all changed because of this chance thing of uh, outdoor work on a roof. Exactly. And that's and what that, changed Andy's two years. And that led to Andy incurring favor with the guards, doing yep. the taxes. The intramural league is now here where the other prison guards come to do their taxes and starts to work for the warden, and everything changes for him forever. And he gets his grand scheme, which takes two hours to discover what's going on. Now, this movie's so great in its first hour, hour and a half, because as an audience member, you don't really know what to believe. You know, we open up with him in the car, He's drunk, he's got this revolver, and his wife is with her lover, the golf pro. And then we're cross-cutting with the courtroom where we're hearing the evidence, we're hearing the excellent prosecution uh, of the of the lawyer prosecuting him. And as an audience member, you know who to believe. You know, Andy's clearly very intelligent, but he does seem cold like the lawyer says he is and like the judge says he is. And it's, did he really kill his wife? Obviously, he's probably, if you did do it, you'd probably lie about it if you're on the stand and you don't want to go to jail for the rest of your life. And then it takes a while until we really discover that he truly is innocent. It's like an hour and a half until Tommy shows up. And then Tommy tells the story about the real killer of his wife and the lover and his cellmate that he had years before. And I think the ambiguity of whether or not Andy's innocent or not adds so much of that mystique to the character. But I feel like deep down, every I feel like when I watched this movie for the first time a long time ago, it felt like he was innocent when I was watching it. It felt like... Something happened. Something was wronged. But then there's that great irony where everyone always, is always asking him. Red's always asking him, like, why'd you do it? What'd you kill your wife for? And he keeps saying, like, he's innocent. And then he gets on the moniker of, like, oh, everyone at Shawshank's innocent. Like, we're all, we didn't do it. My lawyer fucked me. But there's one person at Shawshank that doesn't say he's innocent. It's, it's Red. Red's the only guilty man at, at Shawshank, apparently. And I think that's why I love the character Red so much is because he knows what he did. He's accepted it. And he's more, I guess looking for salvation versus redemption like Andy in a lot of ways they they have different like ways of how they want to finish out their life i guess well so when in terms of ambiguity so do you think it's ambiguous whether Andy killed his wife or not for a while but no no like right now do you no 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 no, no now All now right. yeah tommy I, rem I remember like like years ago you would say that uh, it's kind of like unsure if, if he did yeah, it or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah I changed my tune like the last three times I watched yeah, it. Yeah, he definitely didn't Because, I mean, it. it's still it's still officially not proven. Not, yes, That's not That's the proven. thing about it. Like, even though Tommy's, what he says, could probably be true, and I'm sure it is true, yeah. there's still a chance that maybe it's not true. Yeah, it was like another golf pro um, cheating on a, a woman with yeah. uh, a banker's wife. Could have made it yeah. up. But, I yeah. mean, I it's I think it's no, pretty yeah, clear. I think, yeah, it's, it, also the movie... There'd be no point to the movie, especially the ending, if he was guilty. And as a main character, like you can't empathize with a wife killer. Exactly. And the thing is, they do a great job with the characterization of Andy because, like you said, he's he's he comes off as cold in the prosecuting trial, and the judge even says, "Makes me sick just to look at you. You like you you you're emotionless, basically, because Andy's like that." And Red notices that early on in meeting him, how different he is. 
and how he doesn't really show emotions the same way other people do, especially other men at the prison. And so during the trial, he came off as unemotional. He came off as cold. And that's just because that's who he is. You know, he's, he doesn't wear his emotions on his sleeve. He, it's all inside. And he's a very controlled person. And so when he's answering, answer, answering questions, the judge was probably like, this guy is not showing any remorse or any like emotion about being in the situation. Like, this guy seems like a cold-blooded killer. When in fact, it's just Andy's personality and way of being. So that's what I think that is really what made the judge um, carry out that guilty verdict. Because cause Andy, he couldn't read Andy. and Nobody can at first. And just horrible bad luck. He says bad luck's like a tornado that just crashed into him. It's wandering around trying to find somewhere to land and it landed on his lap. You know, he, he was at the scene of the crime. He did have a gun. He did have... Fingerprints, boot prints, the broken bourbon bottle. He was there at the scene of the crime. And the gun was never found. Yeah, so in the, the judge says, I bet you think it's really convenient that the but the gun never was found. He's like, actually, I find it very inconvenient that it was never found because he's very analytical. He's highly, highly intelligent. Red says, you know, he's as smart as he come, as they come. He's probably got somewhat of a photographic memory, the way he can do things, the way he can remember things. I mean, even just like sculpting is just, he's such an intelligent person. I think that's what makes him sort of learning. Plus, there's this great Christian allegory to Andy Dufresne in The Shawshank Redemption where you can kind of look at Andy Dufresne as sort of a Christ-like figure. And, you know, he does these good deeds when he's in prison. He's he's trying to help people. As well as you could look at his friends as his disciples, his, like, 12 <laughs> disciples. You could look at the warden as a Lucifer. And then you can also look at uh, Tuataneo as heaven or paradise, which he's trying to... There's reach. no Judas though. Yeah, that's that's the thing. There's he's no not Judas. betrayed by anyone. Yeah. There's yeah. There's no Judas in but he's he's called a fish. There's fishes. <laughs> that's a common prison slang though. <laughs> I mean it's I'm just cute. saying it's cute. It's a little I think it's a little stretch. It is a stretch. Yeah, it's just it's a bit of a stretch. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> fish. <laughs> she just love fish. <laughs> And, I mean, there's so many great thematic elements of this film, and I think that hope, obviously, is the most obvious, not losing hope and hope keeping you alive, where Andy never loses his hope once he obviously gets safe from the sisters, and obviously when he discovers that he can tunnel through that wall very early in his tenure at the prison, which I love how Darabont doesn't reveal the whole until the third act of the film, and we get a shot early when he gets that rock hammer from Red. And Red makes that great joke, like, when Andy's asking for the red hammer. He's like, I mean, what, are you going to use it to break out of prison to escape? And, and Andy's like, oh, it'd take about 60 years to do that. And Red's like, I don't know. He's like, if, when you see it, you'll understand. Because Red thinks it'll take him 600 years to tunnel through with that thing. Exactly. When Red finally gets it, he's like, I got the joke. And he left it for him in his bed while he's in the infirmary, as well as they got him a bunch of rocks. And then Andy, I mean, Darabont does a great sequence where... He see Andy's looking at the names on the wall that have been carved, and he's like, I'm going to carve my name on the wall. And then he just starts writing the A, and then it cuts. And we never think anything of it until the third act of the film when that poster gets revealed to be hiding a massive tunnel. And then we get the sequence in the little montage of Andy over 19 years planning his escape. How finally later on we see when he was finishing that A, a large chunk of stone came out of the wall. It's an hour and a half wait into seeing where this led to. It's incredible. It's just great patience as a filmmaker and a screenwriter to hold this huge turn. 
this huge card up your sleeve just to hold it as long as possible. And it worked as a great twist because he set it up as Andy is going to kill himself with a noose. So he completely misled the audience and the other characters, and it was a great trick. And he fooled everyone because nobody saw that coming. Everyone thought, first time you're watching this movie, you think Andy's going to kill himself. You think he's going to hang himself. He seems to have hit a new low. But, and then when we when they cut to the next morning and roll call and everybody steps out of their cell and Red looks over at Andy's cell and he's not there. And he's like, oh shit, he's not coming out of his cell. Everybody thought he was dead. The, everybody who's seen this movie, the first time you've seen it, you think he's dead. It's not one of those twists that people can be like, I knew he wasn't dead. They'll, they'll say online. Well, yeah, I knew he was going to escape. Everybody knew, was like, everyone knew he was going to escape. teachers be like. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was just a, one of the all-time great twists that I don't think really gets put on lists. The twist of Andy escaping and not dying. Exactly. And what I love about it so much on rewatches for the Shawshank Redemption is you see all these little details that almost reveal what's going on for the other characters where you know after you've watched this movie that he's been playing this the whole time. Every scene, you know in his cell, he's chipping away at that tunnel slowly over the course of 19 years. And then so many sequences where we're in his cell or the warden's in his cell. They do the the cell inspection the cell inspection gives me the first one. Yeah, it gives me so much yeah. stress and anxiety because I'm watching it, and I know the posters there. I know the posters on the wall, and Byron, the the security, the the main guard. Yeah, yeah. He's like knocking books over and like almost nudges the poster. And if he nudged that poster, the hall would have been revealed immediately. And then also, so like every time anyone's in his cell, also Tim Robbins, the first cell uh, breach search, he has this look of terror on his face that he's trying to hide. And at first, you don't. You just think maybe he's nervous, but on repeat watches, you're like, please don't touch the poster. Please don't touch the poster. But even better than the poster, and obviously, like, don't see the poster, is this is when, after he's been doing the taxes for the guards, the warden wants to size him up. That's why they did this inspection. And he comes with Byron, Byron Hall, right? And he wants, he says, like, basically, at the end of the conversation, he says, you're good with numbers. And he doesn't offer him, like, a job of accounting, but he's like, maybe we can get you something better than laundry room. This leads to him getting the library job with Brooks. Now, the warden is such an interesting character because he's such a contradiction. The first time we meet him, this is when the new fish come into town, into the cells, into the prison. He says, there's one rule. I mean, rule number one, no blasphemy. He says he believes in discipline in the Bible. Put your trust in the Lord, your ass belongs to me. So he's a very ironic character where he's a criminal. He's probably a murderer. I mean, he's an accessory to murder. He's carried out murders or ordered her murder, murders, but he's also very religious and believes in the Bible. And so when he starts talking to Andy the first time he comes into his cell, he sees the Bible and they start quoting verses to each other. And clearly Andy has a photographic memory and he probably memorized the entire Bible Maybe not here in the cell, but maybe he has before. I would say it's been it's been years. Yeah, maybe he's a religious he's, man. He's like just all the time in the world. You have nothing else to do. But this is really early on. Yeah. So he's clearly memorized. But, but this is like five years in. Is it five years? Three, it's say, at least three, okay, at least three years. So well, either way, he's memorized the Bible. Yeah. And maybe he's been biding his time for a moment, meeting the warden, and then they go back and forth. Bible verse quotes and recognizing the quotes. The warden is holding his Bible, and what's inside of his Bible? is a rock hammer that's been chiseled out, that's been cut into the pages. That's where he hides his rock hammer. If the warden just opened up that book, he would have found the rock hammer in there, and that would have been very suspicious. And then 
the warden opens up the Bible that Andy leaves for him when he plans his big escape. In the morning, the warden opens the book, and what's inside? An empty space where a rock hammer was. It's incredible. Like, you watch the scene, you're like, oh my god, the poster. Oh my god, the Bible. Don't open it up. And he also wrote the quote that the warden actually quotes to him in that scene in the cell about finding uh, something about like dis- like punishment or discipline within, something like that. He writes that on the first page of the Bible, and, and the warden quotes that to him. I am the light of the world. Something like that. So that's something that's, within. He says, I am the light of the world, and this is ironic because he uses it to, he thinks he's like reverencing Jesus, but really it's, it can also be a reference to Lucifer. Yeah, but it's not that on the book. It, sa- it says, you're, you were right, Warden. Something about something No, within. salvation is inside. Salvation is inside. Yeah. That's it. Salvation is inside. It's not a quote. It's just yeah. that's what, that's that's what, what he says. says. No, yeah. no. I'm, I, he oh, quote, I'm sorry. The quote is— I thought you said spider. It's a quote spider. of the Warden of what <laughs> Warden said to him in that cell. I'm not saying it's a Bible quote. <laughs> <laughs> salvation lies with it. Thank you very much. You were right, Warden. <laughs> but also, Andy finding that hole, that's what helped him keep his hope. Because he always had the hope of escape. If Andy was put in a cell between two other cells, he would have become just as hopeless and cynical, nihilistic, and uh, depressed as all the other inmates. Even Red, who's very pessimistic, pessimistic exactly. and cynical. Yeah, Red's very pessimistic. That's a great point. Andy would have suffered through that, but because the, cha- the off chance of him being put on the end of the cell block with the wall... That's in, in discovering that the the stone had been worn away over time and was much looser than normal. That in him finding the hole, him discovering the, the ability to make the hole is what allowed him to maintain his hope for uh, 17 more years. It was that hole. If he, ne- if he was put in a different cell in a different part of the prison, he would have fallen into dis- disarray and he maybe would have killed himself. It's possible. Yeah, if he didn't accidentally... Find out that that stone was weak and yeah. then create that hole, create that tunnel. And ironically, even though he spends the most time in the hole in solitary than anybody, he does the most stretch of time. He also spends the most time in this hole, in this tunnel, which is kind of hey, funny. Hey. He loves holes. Yeah, he does um, two months straight in the hole, which is terif- which is horrible. A month was already the longest anyone ever heard of for someone going into the hole. But then, yeah, he did two months. And I think that the warden was so offended by Andy calling him up too, so obviously. But I think it's because it might be a word that the warden didn't understand. I think so too. I look at it what as- did you call me? I look at it as the warden was threatened by Andy calling him obtuse and the warden not- the warden not knowing what calling someone obtuse meant. Obviously we know what obtuse can mean round and there's obtuse angles. That's <laughs> my extent to the word obtuse. And so I think when Andy used that, it showed that he had a superior intelligence to the warden, and the warden was so threatened and defensive about it. That's what made him lock him up. I mean, if yeah. Andy used another word, he probably wouldn't have reacted that way. Yeah, it means uh, incredibly insensitive. So I think that's why the warden locked him up for two two months straight. Because this is when Andy's telling him about Tommy's story that like I can be a, I can get a retrial, and the warden's like, oh, he just lied to you. He just wanted to make you feel special because he's he looks up to you. He's like, how can you be so obtuse? I can, I can. What'd you call I, me? I can. This is my life. What'd you say? What did you say? I don't understand that word. But yeah, how, how can you be so? That's how I look at the obtuse reaction. And the warden, he's a great antagonist to this film. There are obviously multiple. The warden, Byron Hadley, and Time are probably the main antagonists of this film. Yeah, and the the crew did a great job of aging all of the actors. Uh, Andy, Red, 
in the warden, most notably, um, you can really see the aging with the hair. The warden's hair is long and slicked black, slicked back in the opening of the film for the first several years, and then in the latter half of Andy's sentence, it's short and gray. And Andy gets a lot of gray in his hair, but also he starts combing it back, and that makes him look older. His hair was kind of like falling down on both sides in, in a middle part. That gave Tim Robbins a very youthful look, but then... Ten years later, he's combing it back. It's a little gray. It looks like he's added ten years to his life. Same thing with Morgan Freeman by the end of the film. He's got a lot of gray in him. So the hair and makeup team did a really fantastic job of aging the characters believably. There's no prosthetics. There's no crazy makeup. But it's really the subtle things that can make someone aged so many years. And and what's interesting is we kind of get the sense of time flying by just like the, the prisoners do because they'll – Red will be like, man, 30 years. When you say it like that, it's, it's crazy how fast it happened. And, and then Andy's been there for, for 20 years and 19. We kind of get that sense of, you know, this is what time flying by is like. They don't even, they barely notice the years passing by. There's so many great lines in this movie alluding to time and the passage of time where Red says something about you, your first night there. It's, I think it's when they first get the first new fish arrive at Shawshank. And he says... You are just basically alone with your thoughts to think about what you've done in your crimes, and you have all the time in the world to think about it. And you can only imagine. I mean, Red was, what, 18 when he got arrested? And he's been in there for over 30 years. That's insane. You're more Most of his life has been inside prison, and institutionalization is one of the main themes of this film as well. And I think Red's parole hearings are really special acting from Morgan Freeman, especially, I mean, I, I kind of want to watch them all three back to back to back on like YouTube or something because they're really terrific and there's three different parole hearings. I think he has them, it seems like every 10 years he has a parole hearing because he's in a life sentence for release from prison potentially. So his first parole hearing is early on so when Andy gets there. I think it's maybe the first year Andy's there. And Red has a parole hearing. He looks pretty young. And Morgan's terrific because... He's so ner- he's so nervous. He's like gripping his hat, like, "Oh my god, like I gotta say the right things. I, I want to get People out of here." Pleasing. Exactly. Yeah. And he's very responsive. He's very polite, and he gets rejected. Nervous. He and gets hopeful. he gets rejected because they know he's telling them what they want to hear. Exactly. And they know he's they know he's reciting the right things to say. So that means he hasn't really changed. And then the second parole hearing, ten years later, he's not nervous really anymore, and he's almost completely hopeless he knows he he seems like he's not gonna get completely nihilistic exactly he's like i don't really care that much i have a little bit of hope i know this isn't gonna work out so i'm not gonna try that hard but i'm gonna say the same things i said last time but i'm not nervous about it anymore and he gets rejected and the third time he has his parole hearing for release this is after andy's gone he's completely apathetic and has gained a lot of wisdom where we also have change in management in terms of who's running the parole hearings. We have this younger guy with this suit that he compliment that he talks about. He's asked about rehabilitation, and he's like, I don't even know what that word is. That's a made-up word. It's a politician's word for someone to have a suit and have a job like you. And basically he says, you want me to say that I'm sorry for what I did? And the guy says, yeah, well, are you sorry? He's like, not a day goes by. I don't feel regret for what I did. I wish I could go back in time basically and and – Stop that young kid from making those mistakes that he made. But now that's what's replaced him is this old man, basically. He's like, do what you have to do because I don't give a shit anymore. Yeah, he showed that he is transformed. He's a different human being from the, the guy who got locked up for murder. Um, that's That was the real 
evidence of his transformation by the board to judge. And he served 40 years, 40 years up to this point in prison. It's crazy. That's absurd. And that and then that ties to Brooks and there's it's just it's like a little short film within the film, Brooks's tragic story. It's a five minute window into his release and life on the outside for him, the letter he writes to the guys. And it's it really is like it's like this little segment of sort of an intermission from the main story to show an example of what the effects of uh, prison, the effects of uh, Shawshank on Brooks and the institutionalization of him, of the man, of a person who spent 50 years on the inside. And it, it's one of the most tragic things I've ever seen in film is Brooks' story, struggling to adapt, um, being afraid of the real world, uh, missing prison. That's something that at first some of the guys are uh, bewildered by. And Andy's like, I, I can't understand what happened in there when Brooks was trying to kill um, one of the guys, Tommy. Just, Tommy just. Oh no, to, no, sorry. Yeah, the other guy just to uh, keep his prison sentence, keep to keep it going, so we wouldn't have to leave. Uh, but, but the institu- institutionalization is a real thing that Red talks about, and he su- and Brooks suffers from that on the outside, and he's a nobody out there, but he was a somebody inside. And so Red says his great line is, "When they give you a life sentence, that's exactly what they take. They take your life." And so when Brooks was released. He has no life anymore. And so he chose just the easier way out. And it was tragic. Uh, but you understand why he did what he did. But it's it's an incredible, powerful part of the film. Yeah, it's it's really sad because Brooks seems like a like a good guy. You know, he's got this little crow in his pocket that he's Jake. Jake that he's, you know, taken care of and eats he gets that little uh, maggot from Andy. And uh, hey, you gonna seems like you're gonna eat that <laughs> such like he he, he He's got happiness about him. He's got a warmth about him. You know, when Andy gets assigned to the library after he starts working for the warden as basically a reward, he is a very warm person, very welcoming, and he's happy to have Andy there. He's, he smiles the most. He smiles more than anybody in the film probably, but then he cracks up because he's getting released and then obviously he kills himself. So it's, it's really tragic, tragic to see what institutionalization does to somebody. And even Red doesn't think he can survive on the outside. The only thing that prevents Red from either suffering the same fate and following the same path as Brooks or going back into prison is the promise he made to Andy to go find that oak tree, uh, to go find what's hidden under that volcanic glass that shouldn't belong in Maine, and then following the path of discovering where Andy is in Mexico. I think that's the only thing that keeps him alive, really, and keeps gives hope alive because because Red, he doesn't believe in hope. He, he really doesn't, not until he probably reads that letter because... When Andy finally gets his library expansion project and he gets all those books and the records, he puts that record on of the Italian woman singing and gets a hole, gets in the hole for two weeks, right? And he comes back out and the guys are so happy to see him at lunch. And they ask, like, how'd you, how'd you make two, two weeks in the hole? That's the longest stretch we've ever heard of. He's like, well, I had... I had he said Mo- it was the easiest time I ever did. I had yeah. Mozart to keep me company. And he's talking about music. They're like, what do you mean, music? He's like it's inside of me. Like they, they can't take that from you. Music, it's doesn't doesn't music make you feel that way? Doesn't it give you hope? They can't take hope away from you. And Red doesn't believe in hope. He thinks it's kind of BS, and he he's not he doesn't like this connection to music and hope because when Andy eventually gets him that harmonica as a gift because Red tells him he used to play me in harmonica at that cafeteria sequence, Red is afraid to play it. He's terrified to play it. He just gives it one little note in his cell one night. 
but he refuses to play it because he's afraid of hope. Yeah, and, and music represents hope, obviously, as you're getting into. And it's beautiful. It's it's tragic. And red is a representation of the institutionalization of how it sucks the life out of someone and takes away their life force. And th that music sequence is one of my favorite sequences, too, when he plays the records. When he plays the record on, on air. Because Andy knows he's going to get into trouble. He knows he's going to get put in the hole. He knows he's going to get disciplined. But he decides to play the music anyways because he wants to give the men a taste of humanity, a taste of hope, a taste of art and beauty. And it's just incredible because nobody, knews, nobody knew what the, the women were singing in a different language. But every, every single man in Shawshank was transfixed and frozen staring up at that speaker. And it's the first time any of them had heard music in some of them for decades. Imagine going decades without listening to music. And that's something that if if you don't have anything like art in your life for that long, it's no it's no surprise that people completely fall into disillusionment. And so Andy knew Andy decided it's worth the punishment to give the men a taste of beauty again. Yeah, the looks on their faces in the prison yard when they're all just looking at the speaker in shock and confusion and they can't even move. They're all frozen like statues listening to the singing. Couldn't have played any Hank Williams. <laughs> <laughs> How about we head into our intermission and I want to get back to this library expansion and, and like kind of where it led to and how it began. But before we continue, the best, the best way to support Raiders of the Lost podcast and to help us grow is to share us with your friends and family members who love movies, who love cinema. If they love the Shawshank Redemption, send this episode to them because it's going to be a great breakdown. I'm sure they're going to love it. It's the best way for our show to grow as well as leaving those five-star ratings and reviews on Spotify and Apple. I'm going to read an Apple written review in just a minute. We love to read those off on the show as well as becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Patreon is a subscription-based form of support for the show. We have five different tiers of membership, and they all come with awesome perks, including two bonus episodes every single week of the show that every single patron has access to each week. We also put them on Spotify, so you can connect your Patreon accounts to your Spotify and listen on the app Spotify instead of Patreon. We have $2, $5, $10, $25, and $100. Each tier has better perks as you go up the ladder. Obviously, $10 gets you access to our Discord. $25, you get a great perk like a custom episode. Whatever you want, we'll cover it for you. And the $100 is just the granddaddy, the chosen one tier, the God, I mean, the greatest tier of all time. You get to come on the show for a fun guest segment after three months. You get a private watch party, all sorts of great things like merch as well. Thank you to everyone who has become a patron of our show. It's the only reason why we can do it full-time, so from the bottom of our hearts, we appreciate you. This episode, of course, is sponsored by our friends at MoviePosters.com, the number one place to get your posters online today. Be sure to use our promo code RAIDERS10. That's RAIDERS10 at MoviePosters.com to get 10% off your order right now. They have a huge selection of pretty much every movie and TV show imaginable in their poster library. Very high-quality prints. They look amazing our house and our set is de are decked out with all of these incredible posters. They have all sorts of sizes, framing, and even backlighting for your poster needs. They make a great gift for the movie lover in your life and also a way to showcase your passion and love for movies by decking your place out with a bunch of movie posters. The best place, of course, is at movieposters.com. And don't forget to use our promo code RAIDERS10 to get 10% off your order right now. 
Now let's get into our intermission and have some fun movie games going on. <laughs> let's do it. Have some fun movie games going on. That's a on. weird way to say that. <laughs> I don't know Sometimes what that Sometimes we talk for a long period of time, words just start to come out weird. Yeah, it happens a lot. Let's begin with the movie quotes competition, Anthony. You ready? Oh, yeah. You guys want to see a dead body? Stand by me. Yes, sir. <laughs> All right, here's mine. We bury our sins here, Dave. We wash them clean. We bury our sins here, Dave. We wash them clean. I don't know. Mystic River. It's right <laughs> before Sean Penn. Spoilers. I won't spoil it. Don't spoil yeah, it. I won't spoil <laughs> it. <laughs> what a great ending, yeah, man. It's great. I love the third act of that movie. Guess this movie release year, Anthony. Misery. Misery came out in 1992. 1990, the year we were born. Wow. I'm your biggest fan. <laughs> what year did The Player come out? Robert Downey Jr., right? Or is that the... No, Tim that's, Robbins. That's the... Um, what's that one called? Oh, you're thinking of The Pickup Artist. The Pickup Artist, sorry. Yeah, yeah. The Player. The Player. He's the, he's the movie agent. Oh, right. 1997. All right, movie pop quiz time, Anthony. What Stephen King adapted movie did Arnold Schwarzenegger... Starring. What? Stephen King adaptation with Schwarzenegger. <laughs> oh, man. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to guess. Can I get two guesses? Sure. All right. First guess is The Running Man. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, baby. <laughs> Woo. <laughs> Seems like something Stephen King would write. <laughs> <laughs> that was a complete guess it's a ridiculous movie oh man the outfits in that movie <laughs> I haven't seen it in a long time he's got this like orange and white jumpsuit like skin tight tracksuit on the whole time not the whole time what Coen Brothers movie did Tin and Robin star in yeah when you said that earlier I'm like what Coen, Bro Coen Brothers movie is he in good question you're like I hope he doesn't ask me that <laughs> 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 uh, bits. Um, man, fuck. Uh, Tim Robbins, Coen Brothers. He's the lead. He's the lead. He's the number one guy. My number one boy. <laughs> <laughs> it's a sex succession reference. My number one boy. I don't know. My number one boy. The Hudsucker Proxy. My God, we brought that up in the 1994 episode. Yeah, it's a great movie, man. Great movie. It's really funny. All right, let's get into haters of the week. Any unsubscribes? What do we got going on, Anthony? Oh, yes, 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 yes. We got some. We got some. I'm going to pull up a five-star review from Apple right now. And if you want to leave us a written review, all you need is an iTunes account or an iPhone. All you need is an email if you don't have an iPhone. All right, so we got Joshua Reinert, 308, wrote in our Zombies and Vampires episode, a whole episode of Zombies and Vampires, and y'all didn't mention the masterpiece Morbius once? <laughs> Unsubscribe. We didn't know we brought up Morbius. Did we? I said Morbius on the show at one point. We were talking about the something. In the in like in the first like ten minutes, I think I made a joke about Morbius. Did you? I can't remember. I think so. I don't know. I'm not sure. I honestly don't even remember talking about I'm gonna Morbius. look at the transcript. I really don't. I'm gonna pull the transcript off YouTube. <laughs> yeah, you really gonna? Yeah, I'm curious. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I brought Morbius, but I could be wrong. I don't think we talked. I really don't think we mentioned Morbius. I made a joke about it. Yeah. 
But also, speaking oh, you know, oh yeah, the song you're, you're gonna bring the blue blood. So it's, yeah, speaking of blue blood, we were trying to figure out what movie has blue blood, it's artificial synthetic, synthetic yeah. blood, and we thought it was the Ethan Hawke movie, but it was actually Morbius is what we were thinking of. Morbius makes blue blood that he uses, so he doesn't have yeah. to drink blue blood. Terrible. I'm, I'm sorry, I can't. I I screenshotted it, but I can't find it in my in my screenshots. Someone commented that, and I can't find it. I so. remember seeing that because we thought that Daybreakers was the movie where yes. the synthetic. Well, there was yes. synthetic blood being made. So whoever wrote that, I'm sorry, I can't find your screenshot, but thank you very much for helping. You were totally right. That's exactly we were thinking of Morbius. That's one of the worst parts of Morbius. Just make him suck blood. Like he's you he's a vampire. Yeah. Just make him kill people and drink blood. He's a doctor. He's a doctor. He only kills bad guys on yachts. That's interesting. I mean, on, <laughs> <laughs> <the> boats. <laughs> All right. Next up, Eben wrote. Doesn't mention 30 Days of Night in their best vampire movies. We did. I think we... We did. We definitely did. The thing is, it wasn't on our list. But I think we mentioned it offhand once. We mentioned it a couple... I think twice. We said it twice. Yeah, I think I said, like, something like they were scary looking for vampires. But we didn't put it on our list. I thought we did. It wasn't on our list. Pretty sure it was. Definitely not. Not, like, on the list list. It was brought up, though. It definitely was yeah. mentioned. I think, yeah, I think so. We forgot a couple, like the zombie movie, The Girl with All the Gifts, we forgot. Yeah, so Eileen was like, The Girl with All the Gifts, we totally, I totally spaced on yeah, that one. Yeah, me too. That's such a great book, too. It's a really good movie. It's a, that's a really good movie. Great pick for a zombie movie that's, you know, different. It's, it's, a, it's a cool one. Uh, okay. And then, da, 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 we had a problem with our Spotify and some of our ads were playing during the episode, so it wasn't like a break. Yeah, it wasn't our fault. It's just a bug. Oh, no, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not like we did it. It's not like Anthony, like we did it like Anthony did it on purpose. <laughs> like, you know it would be fun if we just put ads while we were over talking? But our, 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 we had a few people reach out to us to hit us up about it. We, we love that when there's an issue, please, honestly, just DM us so we can fix it right away. So yeah. we, and we did. So we know what Anthony did wrong. But, but <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even edit that episode, motherfucker. Or maybe I did. Yeah, it was the PTA one. Yeah. Uh, anyways. So why'd you put ads on the episode? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was the other one, too. It was the, okay. the entire week. Yeah. And then Jenna, our great fan, she messaged us giving us a heads up about it. And I, I wrote, thanks so much. Thanks for the heads up. And she said, I, I figured I figured you would. I said, we got multiple messages about it from a lot of people. She said, I figured you would have, but just wanted to make sure. I won't unsubscribe. Don't worry. <laughs> just a, there was just a bug on Spotify. It was sick. It was sick that day. <laughs> Honestly, I don't know how that could have happened. They just had some coding issue, I bet. Now, let's get to a five-star review from Gabby's Origin Story. Origins! <laughs> That's the name. <laughs> the best. Truly the best film podcast ever. I always appreciate how much effort goes into each and every episode and love the sibling banter and the bickering, I'm sure. Thanks for helping my sister become a film nerd like me as well. I'm so glad All that right. she listens as well. In the Vampires vs. Zombie Movies episode, you guys say you don't think Zombieland has an origin when in the movie it states it's been two months since Patient Zero took a bite from a contaminated burger at a gas and gulp. Unsubscribe! That's right! Gabby, thank you so much for for fixing that for yeah, us. Yeah, we're, we're bozos. Yeah, we get things wrong. We didn't wrong. do our research. We get things... I mean, we had we talked about like 40 movies. Yeah. I hadn't seen Zombieland in a while, but Gabby, thank you so much for the five-star review as well as for being so fun about correcting us. I, we love getting corrected, but it's just yeah. like when people like leave a one-star review, like, idiots, you got this wrong. It's like, you don't have to give a one-star <laughs> review. You can just send us a DM. Like, we're happy to be told we're wrong. As long as you I, I love it when James is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you were wrong. That was you. 
We both were wrong on that. I was just going. You agree? I was going with the you, flow. No, no. You were like, yeah, there was no orgy. You're right. You're right. You're I thought right. we agreed. <laughs> we agreed. All right. What's your streaming recommendation this week? Well, it's spooky season coming up. In a couple of days, it's going to be October. So, The Witch on Max. I also have a Max movie. It's called A Royal Affair. It's a French film. Yes, it has subtitles. <laughs> and Danish film. So it's uh, stars. It was the first thing I ever saw Alicia Vikander in, and uh, an early Maz Mikkelsen role. So Alicia marries a Danish king, so she's a uh, royalty, and then Maz Mikkelsen plays the family doctor, and she and he start an affair. It's called the Royal Affair. It's really great costume drama. I've heard of that. Very very underrated movie. It was it was just a really fantastic film. On Max. It's the one to watch for the royal affair. For, the, for a, a royal affair. A royal affair. A royal affair. Get it? You get my name? Are you saying one word? <laughs> a royal affair. <laughs> a royal affair. Anyways, let's get back into the episode of the Shawshank Redemption. We we left off talking about the music scene with the record player where Andy obviously played the song for the guards to give them a sense of humanity, like Anthony said. He played it for the inmates. I mean, the inmates. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. The way you worded it, it's like the guards are in the room dancing and Andy played them the music. All right, guys. <laughs> you're you're going to love this one. You're going to love this one. For the inmates, I'm sorry. Now, this is a great metaphor for hope and not giving up on hope and self-worth and dignity because Andy asks the warden permission to obviously get funds for the library project. And Warren's like, well, the budget's stretched thin as it is. So he's like, can I have your permission to write to the Senate, basically, to try to get funds for the library expansion project? And Warren's like, oh, you're just wasting your time. But you know what? You write your letters, Andy, and I'll even mail them for you. So every week, Andy writes a letter for six years until one day all these boxes of books show up and Byron Hadley is pissed off, but the other guard's kind of happy for Andy. He's good like, for you, better, you, better, Yeah, good for you, Andy. Better clear this up. By the time I'm back. And the other guard's like, I'm going to pinch a loaf, but this is all gone by the time I'm back, all right? And then he locks him in the bathroom and plays the song. Great sequence, great scene. And when the when the, the nicer guard says, good for you, Andy, what's Andy say? He says, thanks, I guess I'm going to write two letters a week now. And the guard's like, you're crazy, man. He's like, well, I'm going to do it because of hope. He's going to keep this project going because he can get more funding. He's just not going to give up on things. That's, that's what's so great about Andy. He never gives up, even when... They try to buy him off with just a $200 check and some used books. He asks for more. So he writes two letters a week until he gets his second expansion and he gets $500 a year and a bunch of donated books because he makes connection, connections with libraries and book clubs. And he creates the best prison library in New England. They have record players. They have headphones. They have all kinds of books of every genre. So it's a really incredible thing what he did with this library project. And lots of Hank Williams. Lots of Hank Williams. It's really special to see what Andy can do. And he's got so many projects going on. And I think one of the reasons why Andy has so many big projects going on is he's trying to avoid suspicion of what he's doing in his free time. What he's, what's going on in his cell? No one really cares about what's going on in his cell anymore because he's such a busy guy. He's basically a legend to the other inmates because of, like Red says later on after he escapes, like all the things that Andy used to get up to, no one pulled stunts like him before. But because he does such a great job keeping busy with these big projects, working for the warden, being the accountant for him, as well as his money laundering, is doing things for the guards, doing taxes for the guards. No one ever suspects Andy could be doing anything else. 
Well, I would say it's not so much that it's like to get pe- keep people off the scent. It's not like people are being suspicious of him. Yeah, them. I don't want to sound like I'm like he's doing it on purpose, but I think no, I'm just saying the way I look at it is red says the line of, you know, serving time is it's long and there's not much to do, so a lot of people you do what you can to pass the time. So Andy obviously he wants to make the prison a better place and he gets these hobbies and in these projects. But it shows how it's an example of how extraordinary Andy is, where he said, Red says some guys, like, they get a hobby, and some guys, like, they do something minimal. But Andy, he built a library. I think it's just an example of he's such an extraordinary individual where, for him, a simple hobby is creating a, the greatest library in the prison system. But also a major benefit of kind of preventing suspicion from anything going on to keep secret keep his secret better better protected in a lot of ways i'm not saying he's doing it just to like i need to figure out a way to I need a cover yeah i need a cover <laughs> i'm not saying he's doing that like honest on purpose but i think it acts helps him act as a cover to avoid suspicion of anything potentially going on nefarious with him because he's got well for me so what i think he does for that is the the, the stones the stone carving it makes it seem like man it must take forever to make these little statues what else could he be doing in his cell? No, no, I know yeah. all these. Th- I'm just saying that the projects help pr- protect yeah. him. They're mm-hmm. they're a form of protection. I'm not saying it's the only thing that's protecting him, or or it's like his. I'm only going to build this library to avoid suspicion. I'm just saying that they are help form a mask of. He's not doing anything wrong. Yeah, yeah. he's a good guy. Uh-huh. He's he's not up to anything. You know what I mean? <laughs> this just helps. <laughs> so, no, but no, no, so, no. See, <laughs> Jim, see, really, Jim, it's the poster. <laughs> It's the poster that hides the tunnel, Jim, not... <laughs> so he, what he did is he took the rock hammer and, and he made the tunnel with the rock hammer. <laughs> so, Jim, have you seen the movie? So he's, he's building... So every a... night when he was in his cell, he wasn't sleeping. You get it. You, you understand, right? Yeah, right? That's why he's always so slow and tired. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh, man. But... The sh- movie also does a, a really, really terrific job of showcasing the, the brutality of the prison, especially with Byron and the warden. I mean, Byron kills that, that guy the, op- the first night, that, that new fish, beats him to death. And that's it, it, it shows that Red has this line in the library when Andy's telling Red all about the entire fraudulent schemes that he's doing for the warden of funneling money, funneling dirty, dirty money, making it clean. And then Red has this joke of if anybody caught on, he'd be in here wearing a number two. The warden. The warden. And it's ironic because the, the, most, the worst criminals in the film are the warden and Byron. And, I mean, a couple of the guards, are, I'm sure, are great, but we really only see um, Byron do most of the brutal, brutal violence. But the warden and him are criminals as well that's the irony of it and that's why the warden kills himself at the end because he doesn't want to face that he doesn't he does the warden kills himself i don't think it's out of shame or fear i think he kills himself because he doesn't want to be locked up in a prison and he doesn't want to be an inmate he doesn't want to be anything less than what he is right now because he in a way he acts like in a godlike way the way he handles himself the way he treats the people under him uh he treats them like subhuman 
And so he doesn't he doesn't want the reverse to happen to him. He doesn't want to be one of those guys in the blue uniform doing roll call, being uh, let out to the yard. And so that's I think that's why the warden kills himself because he know ironically he is as bad as a criminal as anyone in there. And clearly his obsession with religion and the Bible and faith is all a cover. It's all BS because for him. Maybe in a way, it's for him to justify his actions. That well, that's what I, it's not so much a. It, it's more of an excuse. Yeah, for to how be able he to acts. do whatever he wants. Because in, in the Bible, if God strikes down, and if God punishes and kills, then that means I can too. Yeah. So if I do these things, as long as I read the Bible, and I yeah. am a church-going man, then everything's going to be okay, and I'll be saved. And he has, obviously, that Bible quote on the wall that hides his safe that his mother and that his wife sewed. It says, his judgment cometh in that right soon. Basically meaning that judgment will come very shortly for, clearly, the warden. And it does. It's a great, great little foreshadow. And going back to the warden and, and the things that he's doing in this prison with Andy and Andy creating this false person, Randall Stevens, where all this money funnels to. And it's all going through the prison, but Andy makes it so clean. He's created an identity of a person that doesn't exist, a phantom has a driver's license, a social security card, an address, a job, everything. This person which Andy eventually uses as an identity once he escapes prison and takes all of the warden's dirty money out. 300, over $300,000, which at the time was probably what? like Probably like, like $5 million at least. In the 50s? Adjusted for inflation. Yeah, a lot. Millions. A good amount of money. No, it was in the 50s, was it? It was... What years? Oh, you know, yeah. The, it was like the fifth, when he got out, I think it was the 50s. Because Brooks got into prison in 1902. 1902. 1902, and he's in prison for like 50, 50 years. years. And, all right, yeah. the cars, the automobiles, boom, for sure. Now, I think it's such a genius plan. It's a great well, reveal before, later I'm on. I'm sorry, just to stay on the warden before we get to the plan. Sorry. No, no, no yeah, I was, yeah. The warden, what, what Darabont did with the warden is he showed a real thing of prisons using basically slave labor from prisoners on... Uh, community projects for for state and government, building roads, bridges, railroads, um, clearing trees and in, in forests and stuff. And this stuff really happened in uh, prisoner. It was basically considered prison uh, slave labor in a way because the prisoners were paid what like a penny. It is slave labor. Yeah, I don't yeah. think they were paid at all. May, uh, maybe they weren't paid at all, but now they have to be. And now it's less extreme as it was back then. But it's it's a real thing that was happening with prisons of. Using inmates and prisoners to basically work twelve hours a day, and then the wardens in the prisons would—they're—they're they're basically businesses. They are corporations. That's uh, a problem with the industrial prison complex is uh, they act as you know businesses more so than government institutions. And so it was all about—they're raking in millions of dollars based upon the projects they get from the government or from uh, independence, independent contracting companies, and just doing all this work. And the, just the couple people on the top are getting all the money, and then the prisoners are liter literally working like slaves without any pay at all. And so it was a terrible thing, and the film does an amazing job of showcasing that. And It's a great point. Something I love about Andy is how brave he is. And obviously getting up to no good in the, the things he does, like the record playing and turning up the volume when the warden's telling him to turn it off. But also... Like we talked about earlier, the, the roof job where he's very brave to walk up to Byron Hadley, a killer, 
the harshest guard, guard at Shawshank, who's just mouthing off about how his brother was a millionaire and he left him $35,000, but it's going to get taxed, and then he's going to get taxed even more on it, and Uncle Sam's going to take most of it. And Andy goes up to him, and he says, do you trust your wife? And Byron's about to throw him off a roof, and then he explains to him, like, you can keep that $35,000 if you give it as a gift to your wife. The IRS allows for a one-time cash payment gift of up to $60,000 for your spouse. It's a very brave thing to do. And then offering to do the paperwork to set it up, leading to, obviously, everything he was able to do with the money laundering with the warden. And I wonder, do you think Andy, when he started doing the money laundering and setting up these bank accounts for the warden, that his plan was to, I'm going to escape and I'm going to take over the personality of Randall Stevens? Absolutely. It was just it was just as much a part of the plan as the hole was. So with the hole, he was like, I have, I'm starting digging this tunnel. I'm eventually going to be able to get out. And then also with the accounting, he was like, now I have a way of having a life outside of the prison, of having money, and of having an identity. So I think once he started doing that, he's like, this is also going to be just as much a part of the plan as the escape is the new identity. It's really special because then on rewatches, obviously, like that scene we were talking about where he's explaining to Red what he's doing th with cleaning the money. You can tell, like, there's a twinkle in his eyes, like, I wish I could tell Red what I'm doing. Yeah. I wish I could tell him my he's, plan. He's smiling. And it must have been so hard for Andy to have this incredible best friend that he's so open with and they've helped each other get through the last 19 years together to not tell him a single word of what he's been doing secretly because he knows if he tells Red that Red's going to get in trouble. Red can't know a single thing about it. He can't. It was to protect, to protect him. Exactly. Yeah. But I'm sure it was really difficult to not tell him because it's your best friend and you hope to see him one day. Yeah, and you, you see it, it has been difficult because when he and Andy have that kind of a fight where Andy keeps talking about like a life outside of prison and Red's like, what are you talking about? It's just, these are shitty pipe dreams. We talking about Mexico. Like what, what are we, what are we, we're stuck here for multiple life sentences. Um, but he, and he doesn't understand that Andy has this secret and that Andy is going to get out very soon. And you can see it wearing down Andy and Tim Robbins is, is breaking down in tears. And it's, it's a combination of, he wishes he could tell Red and then also, like, you know, it's been a difficult 19 years, but I'm almost there, and I just have to keep on holding out hope, and I have to keep on digging. The two months after, this is after he's in the hole for two months. Yeah. That's when he's, I'm going to leave. I'm getting out of here. I can't do this anymore. It might even be, like, the first, like, week or so that he's back. Something like that, yeah. Yeah. It's tough. And the great analogy to geology, where Andy loved geology, geology is the study of pressure and time. And all it took was pressure and time and a big-ass poster. <laughs> it's great. It's a great metaphor of geology, the study of pressure, and the time it took to dig that tunnel. So it's a brilliant plan, although, you know, it's, that doesn't make it easy. It, it, it's it all hinge, so well thought out. It all hinges, thing. yeah, it really all hinges on, you know, the, the, the pipe working. True. Being able to get through the pipe. I'm sure he tested. I'm sure he knew. But also the, the convenience and the luck of having a thunderstorm. Finally, yeah. luck's in his favor for the first time. But also the plan of, all right, I'm going to escape prison. I'm going to have access to a ton of money, but I have to get out of this area. I don't know where Shawshank Prison is in the story, but I'm sure it's pretty far away from a town. And you can't just be strolling into a, count, a town covered in shit in prison uniforms. So <laughs> he steals the prison's uniform. He steals the warden's best suit. Steals his shoes after he buffs him. I love when you when he's buffing the shoes. You think he's just so depressed. I'm buffing these shoes. I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. Every night I'm going to be buffing these shoes. 
but he's buffing those shoes because he's, he puts them on and his plan is to wear a suit in a, a really nice suit and really nice shoes he brings a bar of soap he brings those chest pieces as well in a bag but it's funny when he's walking through the prison you can tell that he's wearing the suit underneath his prison uniform because it's got those padded shoulders. Yeah, and the footsteps yeah. sound different. But because the padded the shoulders are huge. Yeah. And it's something that you would never see that with the prison uniform. I mean, how often do you look at another fellow's feet? It's pretty great. But his plan's so genius because then he cleans himself with the bar of soap once he gets into the little creek, the little stream, wears a suit and is able to blend into society immediately, then walk into 12 banks and get 12 different cashier checks over $300,000 of money with a real identity exactly it's amazing what you can do when you know the when you when you, uh, he says like when you know the cracks are yeah the cracks yeah. of the system and yeah. everything and this is i mean this wouldn't work obviously in the digital age but on the paper age in the paper age it was definitely doable how many people have had created new identities probably a lot it's probably pretty easy all you need is some money but you know he earned that he earned that freedom crawling through that tunnel that tunnel it's claustrophobic and also the shit water and it's it's just imagine every time I see that sequence, I'm just like, oh my god, this is hell to be able to crawl through. But he had the will and he had the strength to to persevere through that tunnel, through that pipe to get out and on the other end. And that's so. Two. Roger Deakins and Darabont did a bunch of overhead shots in this film. So there's that big prison reveal, which I which I mentioned earlier as my favorite shot, and then when he gets into the creek after escaping and he throws his arms up and we have the overhead pullback with the rain pouring on him. And then also when Hadley holds him at the edge of the roof, we have a wonderful overhead where it starts um, level with the actors and then Deacons rises the camera overhead and looking down at them so that we can see the fall behind Andy. So those three, it's those three really, and they're just wonderful, wonderful shots, and I think they're all highlights of cinematography for the film. Yeah, I mean, the whole movie is a highlight in cinematography. Everything Deacons does, man, he just excels so much, and he makes whatever film he's working on so much better, so much more cinematic, with this just genius approach to dynamic camera work and lighting, and he just always knows what to do with the camera, and it's always for the most part, a very simple movement or a very simple shot. But the thing is, in its simplicity, it, it's always the, the best possible shot. Can I change my favorite shot? Sure. So my favorite shot, I think, is actually when the warden is pissed off that Andy is not in his cell. Where is he? He was here last night. That's his name, <laughs> Andy Dufresne. And he starts taking the rocks that he polishes and crafts. He starts throwing them at the guards, throwing them at Red. He's pissed off. He throws it through Raquel. From is that Planet of the Apes? Them? Oh no, um, uh, the bar, babe, the one that Sydney Sweeney's gonna be in now. They're making a. That's not Barbarella. Is that Barbarella? What no, is that? that was Pam Anderson was Barbarella. I'm not sure what the Raquel movie is. I don't know what that is. Pam Anderson wasn't Barbarella. Yes, she was. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Because that's the one that they're making with Sydney Sweeney, right? Yes, I believe so. Barbarella is 1968, bra. Oh, is it? Yeah, Barbarella. She was in one. Yeah, I was right. Barbarella, 1968. Nice. And obviously, punctures a hole through it, and he sticks his finger in, then his hand eventually, and then the shot cuts to inside the tunnel, and he pulls the poster out, and the warden's in shock, Hadley's in shock, and then Red tips his head. He's like, what the fuck? It's great. <laughs> I think that's the best shot in the movie. That's great. Barbed Wire is the Pam Anderson one. Barbed Wire. Barbed Wire. I was way off. Isn't they both start with Barb? 
So is in Barbie. <laughs> Shut up. Barbarella. It's close enough. It's close enough. No, that's a great shot. The uh, the pullback inside of the tunnel. It's great. It's great. I love that shot. Excellent pick. Wonderful pick. <laughs> this movie's incredible. I love every scene, every moment. It's a perfect movie. It, I, and when Red is looking for the rock, I'm just like, find it, man. Where is it? I hope he it's finds there. it. It's got to be there. <laughs> well, if, I know. Like, I hope he found the oak tree. He does. It's great. It's like a it's like a fairy tale life coming to life. Yeah. Like the story that Andy and I love how Andy doesn't say the name of the town in the letter. He's like, remember the name of the town? Sawataneo. 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 What a movie. And I love the ending, man. What a picture. Sometimes a, a happy ending is so fitting. And I think that's why this is so universally loved because the ending is so powerful and it's it's an ending that you want for the characters and the, it's an ending that they both deserve after going through so much suffering and so much hell and for so many decades. Like they both deserve to, to, to finally be happy in life. And I love seeing Red outside of prison. I really do. I, it's, it's a character that has made a horrible mistake in his life, but you grow to love him despite what he's done in his past. And when he gets out, it's incredible. And obviously we've talked about multiple times some of the incredible cinematography of this sequence of Brooks leaving prison versus Red leaving prison. When Brooks leaves prison, the shot is he's in front of the prison. The bars are surrounding him. He's on the bus gripping the the handles of the seat in front of him. He can't cope. He can't adapt to society. He's not ready to leave the institution. He would go back to prison, but he's just too old to commit a crime again, basically is what he says. And then Red, when he leaves prison, the camera follows him outside of the prison, and the bars aren't behind him. He's looking ahead at the world. It's opening up to him. He's on the bus, and he's looking out the windows, hopeful and surprised and seeing what he's seeing, and he's not gripping this seats but it is still a struggle like he can't it go is. to the bathroom without asking for permission yes and he you know he does contemplate committing a crime and he probably would if he if it wasn't for the promise he made andy instead of getting a gun he gets a compass and he goes and finds that oak tree oh my god i'm gonna cry it's so great <laughs> <laughs> oh man i love this movie i adore it it deserves all the recognition it it has at number one on imdb i'm totally fine with that it really does deserve that spot yeah and i mean i could if it's one best picture, I mean, I could totally see that happening over over Forrest Gump and Pulp Fiction. The people spoke, and they put Shawshank Redemption as number one. 2.8 million ratings. Ratings. A, it also has five stars on Amazon Prime's ratings. Like, it's very rare for a movie to have, like, the five What's stars. What's this letterbox? It's got to be a 4.3, right? I think it's 4.3, yeah. Let me double check. It's uh, number six, I think, all the time on Letterboxd, if I am correct. Letterboxd? Let's see. So you go... So Harakiri is the only 4.4. And then Shawshank's number like 6 or 7. Shawshank is 9. 9? Really? 9 yeah. on, on Letterboxd Top 10. It is a 4.5. So Harakiri is the only 4.6 is what it is. 4.7. 4.7? Yeah, 4.7. Because then Come and See is 4.6. Damn! 4.7. But man, yeah, 4.5 on Letterboxd is very rare. All right. You got anything else on the Shawshank Redemption? I love it. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. Again, the best way to support Raiders of the Lost podcast and help our show grow is to share us with your family members and friends who love cinema, who love movies and TV. Send this episode if they love The Shawshank Redemption because a lot of people really do like this movie. You can also leave those five-star ratings and reviews on Spotify and Apple and become a patron today at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost podcast. Thank you for tuning in. See you next time.
This episode was executive produced by our Chosen One patrons, Cody Moen, Andrew Hagen, Becca Keen, Benjamin Cook, Calvin Murphy Griggs, Nicholas Martin, Darian, Tyler McFly, and Sal Koching. Our Chosen One patrons are our biggest supporters. Thank you so much. Thank you for watching Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button, hit the like button as well, notifications for sure. Listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere you can listen to podcasts. And be sure to check out this other content we have on our YouTube channel.